On this episode of AvTalk, the final A380 rolls out of assembly, more long-haul aircraft are slated for storage, and we review some of the more noteworthy comments on the FAA's proposed airworthiness directive for the 737 MAX. Hello and welcome to episode 94 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and welcome to episode 94, Ian. How are you? Uh, you know, I, I'm okay, I guess. We're a few weeks into, uh, you know, at-home schooling where things are moving along. I'm so sorry. Yeah. The aviation industry is in rough shape and uh we're we're still standing so i i guess i'm okay how how are you i'm fine i i put out a call on twitter earlier today to ask for topics to discuss that weren't covid related or entirely depressing and, and i didn't get a ton in reply so no uh, we're, no, we're going to pick and choose the best we can but if you're looking for good news th- this is not your episode. You might want to skip to 95 two weeks in the future. I mean, if you're looking for news, this isn't really your episode. Nothing, not not a whole lot changed over the past two weeks. Last episode, we had John Ostrauer on and we talked a lot about what's going on with the 787. We're, uh, we're going to spend some time talking about the 737 MAX in today's episode. Oh boy, are we ever. Yeah. But just to kind of update on that conversation, if you haven't listened to it, Go and listen to it uh, in, in episode 93. I think it was a really good conversation about the status of the 787 program, Boeing's manufacturing. But the thing we touched on there was a study that Boeing is working on, ostensibly a study to determine the feasibility of moving production of the 787 to South Carolina. Some reporting this week by Reuters and others really confirmed what we pretty much already knew is that it wasn't a study to to determine if it should happen. It was a study to determine how best and when to do it. So that that's one of the things that has come out in the interim from, from that conversation. The other little tidbit was kind of the the machinations around then what happens to Washington. What does Boeing do there? We touched a little bit on that in the last episode, but some interesting things about moving max production around, what else Boeing would build in either Everett or or Renton. So so some interesting things to happen and I'm sure we'll come back to it in, in future episodes, but that's our our little update there. Yeah, not much in the way of news or, or good or, or bad. I actually have a, a friend, a friend of mine, Eric, who's listening through the entire series of our podcast starting from episode one last week. And every now and then he, he uh, reminds me of something we recorded in episode seven or 10. And there were such better days. We were so happy and good things were happening. It was <laughs> it, I like when he tells me about what happened in episode 10 because I, I have no idea anymore, but no more good news. Uh, I mean, we'll we'll try our best. We're trying to find it. And when we we're find tr- it, we will talk about it. <laughs> That'll lead the show every time we find some good news. Speaking of bad news, uh, the final A380 is rolled out of the final assembly line. If 
I guess it's not bad news for everyone if there are people out there who have never liked the A380 and thought it was a dumb idea from the start. I am not one of those people, but I think everyone can agree that it is, it is a sad moment when the the final aircraft rolls off an assembly line. I mean, it. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that that's the last one. Well, it was just so abrupt. It just kind of happened. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. It just happened, and it continues to to just happen. We we kind of get, I mean, not without warning these days because that kind of everything's on the table. But every time something you know crops up with this airline is getting rid of this now, or or that airline is you know scaling back that, it's not surprising anymore. It's but it's no less. Well, I guess depressing is the right word. <laughs> yeah, it's depressing. I mean, there were a good number of orders still on the table from Emirates that will not be fulfilled at this point. But other than Emirates, the order book was pretty much closed at this point, right? No one was left hanging. No, no. There was Skymark. No. Uh, well, no. I mean, those aircraft were those aircraft produced and taken up by- Yeah, uh, those are the A&A frames, I think. Yeah. I, I was- Pulling random A380. I guess FedEx was the only, you know. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. If, you, if you want to talk about really disappointing customers, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the A380F is not a thing. Not, never not will be happen. a thing. But but we will come back to the to the 747 a little bit later in the episode. But no, no. I, I think that you know it it ran its course. The business case for the A380 just didn't materialize. You could debate this until the end of time, but was it an aircraft too late for its time or too early for its time? Are we going to be in a place yes. 10 years from now where we repine over the fact that the A380 was a thing and it no longer exists? Probably, maybe. I would guess yes. I would argue that it is both. It is both an aircraft that was too late in its time that it would have been a better aircraft earlier on, but obviously the technology wasn't there to, to to do that and do it properly. But I would also argue that it's probably an aircraft that is ahead of its time. Maybe not in design, maybe not in the technology, but that level of transportation capacity and speed, I, I think is uh, is something that that was a bit ahead of its time. Who knows? I mean, we might see even bigger aircraft, or or we'll see you know single single the triple seven triple seven X. I mean, you know, it pushes the the numbers way up there, but still not a three eighty levels. So it'll be interesting to see you know down the line as as new aircraft are developed, what happens there. And speaking of new aircraft. The folks at Airbus unveiled three new hydrogen-powered aircraft or concept two new hydrogen aircraft. Con- yeah, n- Very aircraft. important. These aircraft, are not real not aircraft. Even concept These aircraft. are not being aircraft concepts. concepts. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not even concept aircraft. They're aircraft concepts. We, we have sent our intrepid reporter, Gabe, to talk to the fine folks at Airbus. They are going to chat this week and Gabe will fill us in on what Airbus is up to and what they intend to accomplish with these concepts on our next episode. So look forward to uh, an in-depth review of the concepts that Airbus is working on. We will put a link to that in the show notes just so you can get a head start. And if you do have any questions, feel free to uh, to email us at podcast.fr24.com and we can get into those as well. 
with Gabe on our, our next episode. We have a reporter? We not only have a reporter, we have an intrepid reporter. Wow. I what know. are you going to tell me about that? I told you about that a few days ago. So, obviously, our conversations are being interpreted and you're taking them to heart. So, I appreciate that. <laughs> Let's just run through this bad news as quickly as we possibly can. Th- this one hurts. I know, I know you're a fan, but this hurts deeply our good friend, John Walton. The, the A340-600s at Lufthansa, along with all of the A380s, are now entering full and very, very, very long-term storage. Yeah. Not great. So, Lufthansa had previously announced that the, the bulk of its A380s and the bulk of its A340-600s would be parked. Some may come back in the near future, but at this point, it really looks like they will not be coming back unless there is some exceptional worldwide surge in air travel that is most certainly not going to happen. A portion of the A340-600s are, are being withdrawn from the fleet immediately. Another few, I think seven, are being kept in cold storage, basically. In the A380s, they are all going into cold storage, or those that remain, they almost certainly will not come back. And that's disappointing for me personally, since those are both two aircraft types that frequented JFK and we'll likely never see them again. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not surprising. What was interesting was the language that they used, kind of leaving the door ever so slightly open, as if to say, if there's some sort of magical apparition of travel, and and, and we don't think there will be, but if there is, we might bring some of them back. Yes. If the prophecies that um, our intrepid government here in the United States says that the, the vaccine is coming and COVID will just disappear overnight like magic, then the A380s will come back. But we all know that is not going to happen and anyone who's saying that is an idiot. So here we are. No more A380s, no more A34600 from Lufthansa unless some sort of uh, supernatural miracle happens. Yeah. And they had previously announced or just kind of done, their 747-400 fleet is is finished. They're keeping the, the Dash 8s though. So, you've got a few options. And the, the 340-300s, I think, are still not totally dead. Right. They're, they're hanging on. Who would have imagined that the A340-300 would outlive the 600 or the A380? Nobody would have taken that bet uh, seven months ago. There are so many bets I don't think anyone would have taken seven months ago that just seem, I don't want to say okay, but ju- just seem believable now. We're like, all right, that makes, makes sense, I guess. It makes sense. I don't have to like it. I don't have to like any of this, but it, it all, like, I get it. A hundred percent. I understand it, but I don't have to like it. Also gone, Delta 737-700s. Yes, that was announced, I believe, back in July that Delta would be withdrawing its 777 and 737-700 fleet by the end of the year and Delta is what Delta does and it stuck by its word. Uh, They were removed from the schedule uh, about two weeks ago and today they are moving the remainder of the fleet that were mostly parked in Atlanta, one in Minneapolis, out to basically their what I'm guessing is their final resting place, unless some other airline wants to pick up a couple 700s, which is actually 
not out of the realm of possibility. United's been doing that quite a bit with old Southwest 73700s, but those are now officially out of Delta's fleet. You have to assume that the Delta ones are less battle-hardened than the 737 or the Southwest ones? Possibly, maybe. They probably almost certainly have fewer cycles, but the Delta variant mostly operated in the Caribbean hot and high destinations. So, they've been around saltwater pretty much their entire lives servicing uh, places like St. Martin, all other destinations in the Caribbean. So, it's possible that the Delta version might even be in worse shape. I mean, still perfectly acceptable, but they might have more of a, an issue with corrosion than the I guess the Southwest version, which I'm sure has an astronomical number of cycles being uh, from Southwest. Yeah, yeah. And then the the Delta 777s are slated. It's it's interesting because you were checking the schedules and they're they're ready to go out October, but then there's still some listings in January. I, I wasn't quite following what was happening there. So, the, the final flight I see in our schedule that is likely to actually happen is October 24th, Sydney to LAX. That is when it is removed out of the international schedule. But then I, I still see ramping up January 4th and going through what the schedule says is through the end of time is basically just Atlanta JFK domestic turns, which doesn't make a ton of sense because those were only in the schedule to feed a 777 to JFK from Atlanta to then go over to Mumbai. So, if the Mumbai service is no longer a thing, I'm sure the uh, JFK Atlanta turn is no longer a thing. So, the, the final flight is almost certainly October 24th, Sydney to Los Angeles. There you go. What else is happening? Oh, South African Airways will not be dismantled. Aww. They will not be liquidated. They will live to fly another day. And along with Alitalia, they continue to be nearly invincible. Well, you know what? At this point, it's not just Alitalia and South African Airways turning on the burn money machine because everyone's doing it. So, they don't look that crazy anymore. True, true. But I, I mean, I this is just one... One more thing, I, I think in, in South African Airways case, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, you know, consistent as well with its inability to to make any money whatsoever. Is SAA even operating these days? Very little operation, but they are. They won't be liquidated, so I guess that's that's good news here. Sure. Yeah, I just. Keeping tabs on the undead. Its own partners have pretty much given up on it now that United, also with Star Alliance Airline, has announced Joburg and Cape Town flights from Newark. So, yeah, I don't think United thought that SAA would be around much longer. And even if it is, they don't seem to care. Yeah, well, I, uh, there, there, there's that. This is a thing that is happening and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it whether or not it's A, a good idea or B, I would want to or know anyone who would want to do it. And what I am talking about are a few flights to nowhere. I I have been on flights to nowhere for very specific reasons, but I I can't see myself booking a 7-hour tour over Australia on a Qantas 787 for what would be Australian $787. Multiply that 
up to $3,787 for business class. I, I can't see myself doing that. No, nor should anyone. I mean, I guess in Australia, they, they kind of have COVID mostly under control, but I don't think people should be cramming into an airplane just for, for funsies. But either way, it is morally challenging for me to accept this and that, yes, I like air travel. I advocate for it. I, I obviously enjoy it and partake in it frequently when it you know isn't in the middle of a pandemic. But it, it's hard to put that aside and also say, well, airlines can't pretend to be environmentally friendly and green when they're putting on these flights that are literally serving no purpose. They are not taking you from A to B. They're taking you from A to A for the enjoyment of the ride. And I just really can't get over the fact that airlines are, are on the one hand saying how environmentally conscious they are and how good they've become for the environment. But on the other hand, they're literally, literally burning fuel for no reason. And I'm not a fan of this. Yeah. I mean, I, I get the flights, like the Northern Lights flights or the Qantas tours of Antarctica. Those I can understand because they're you're viewing something that you wouldn't normally otherwise get to see. Right. But what what's in the middle chunk of Australia to see? There's nothing there. I, I mean, and I get there there are things to see, but you can see them by not flying, you know, around for for 7 hours. I, I guess is is my thing, and and to be fair, Qantas is not the only one considering this. Singapore is considering it, and EVA Air is considering it. So they're not alone. But like you said, yeah, I, I it's tough. It's tough to square that with the environmentally conscious rhetoric that airlines are adopting. And and Qantas says that they're they're purchasing offsets, so the the flight will be carbon neutral. But no it, such you know, thing. Ju- judging by the the inhalation that Jason just did, he's about to make the same point I am that you know it's carbon offsets are very difficult in their implementation, and they aren't as good as not producing the carbon. I would love to take one of these flights, you know, any flight at this point. I, I would strap myself to the bottom of a DC-3 and fly through the jungle at this point. But I mean, I, I, I just can't see myself you know, book, booking one of these. That being said, the flight sold out in 10 minutes. Of course it did. Um, and as you were saying about carbon offsets, I think it was Scott Kirby, United's CEO today, that in one of these digital conferences basically said, Offsets are nonsense. Oftentimes when you look into it, they, they are actually terrible things. They had one pitch to them where they were offsetting by by planting like some sort of crop, which, you know, you, you, you harvest crops and then they're gone. So a lot of these carbon offset schemes are, are, are kind of nonsense. So saying it's carbon neutral by offsetting it is a nice PR friendly way of saying we're not actually doing anything. Should we take a quick break and come back and talk about some of the 737 MAX news that has come out in the past week or so? We've got the 
House Transportation Committee's report on the 737 MAX's design and development and certification. And then we have some, and I mean this honestly, some very good comments about the FAA's proposed airworthiness directive from some very knowledgeable people. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper into those after a quick break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And now it's time to dig into some of the 737 MAX related reports and comments that have come out. Jason's going to prepare a dramatic reading of some of the comments on the FAA's Airworthiness Directive. But first, I wanted to talk about what happened with the House report this week. Oh boy, it was it was damning, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it. It was not favorable to to Boeing or the FAA. The report found fault with Boeing's development and design of the aircraft, and it found fault with the FAA's certification of the aircraft. So nothing was terribly surprising, I, I guess, if we're talking about it in, in that respect. The themes were similar to the ones that we've talked about before in the past where you know we talked about the, the issues with the design, um, the issues with the certification, and the issues with the reaction by both Boeing and the FAA in you know following the, the crash of liner 610 and Ethiopian 302. So with that background, we turn to the continued public comment period on the airworthiness directive that the FAA has proposed to remedy the issues with the 737 MAX. The FAA has done its flight testing. EASA has now done its flight testing along with Transport Canada. There are, I believe, a few more things in the list of things to accomplish before this aircraft gets back in the air. But airlines are starting to plan for for training now. Uh, American Airlines will begin training in November, which kind of puts things on a timeline of January-ish to see the aircraft back in the air. It's not out of the realm of possibility that this thing is grounded for two years. Yeah, totally. I, I would say for, for many airlines and regions, especially regions we've heard a lot less from outside of North America, basically, that is not outside the realm of possibility. It is almost a certainty at this point. Yeah. I mean, there, there have been a variety of, of issues getting things organized so that all of the pilots can have their training and the airlines can get their aircraft updated and back in the air. So we're, we're not quite there yet. So, so Jason, I, I will turn it to you now and you can, can maybe go through some of the comments that you found to be most enlightening or I guess troubling. So I believe the public comment section has just actually closed a few days ago. And on the 21st, we're recording on the 23rd today, Peter Lemmy, who is a former Boeing engineer, who I'm not going to say has been quite outspoken, but he's been very, uh, would you agree that he's been honest and vocal? I mean, Peter's comments outside of the 737 MAX, uh, just about aviation in general, have always been very focused. I think he he definitely strikes me as someone who who approaches things very methodically, and so when he says things, I certainly think they're they're worth paying attention to. 
So I, I will read it in part, of course. I'm not going to read in whole because that's a few pages, but I'll read his comment. He says, asks the FAA, are the circumstances that left out MCAS from the original differences list, thus foregoing flight standardization board review, resolved? For example, any augmentation systems will be listed even if no pilot interface and whose intended purpose is to minimize difference. He goes on to explain basically what happens if there is a failure of a single angle of attack vane that reads above a threshold and here's what happens on the flight deck that Peter summarizes if a single AOA vane reads a number that is above its threshold. The stick shaker activates on one side. The stick shaker, if you're not familiar, is typically a device that activates during a stall condition that is impossible to ignore. It's impossible not to notice because it, it literally shakes the uh, the control column of the aircraft to basically say, hey, heads up, something terrible is about to happen if you don't react. Something called a differential field activates, IAS disagree, ALT disagree, which I guess is altitude disagree, misleading pitch limit indicator, misleading minimum speed indications. These issues, he says, are evident on other 737 models as well as the 747, 75, 7767, so it's not unique to the max. But it is still said that when if one of these angle of attack veins malfunctions or like in the case of Ethiopian is literally sheared off and lost, a huge amount of stuff is happening on the flight deck from the stick shaker to different alerts, different warnings. It's quite jarring and overwhelming for crews to handle in his opinion goes on really to get into some of the um, the nitty-gritty here. He doesn't quite believe that the situation on the flight deck has is, is really been addressed. And honestly, reading through this, I, I wouldn't disagree. There's a lot in there about how there are two switches to turn off the assisted trim. Basically, if MCAS is going crazy on you, you're supposed to turn off auto trim but that also turns off, you know, auto trim. So you're left to manual trim again, like the the flight crew in Ethiopian had to deal with, and that is not a great situation where you lose auto trim because MCAS needed to be turned off. So he goes on and on about the circumstances and the conditions on the flight deck, how he he doesn't really think or is questioning if these conditions have been addressed. Uh, we'll link to it. You can read through, but it, it's. 4.1 pages because just his name, Peter Lemmy, is on the last page, which is <laughs> kind of funny. But then there are also some other concerning comments submitted. This one from the United Arab Emirates, actually. So that was the UAE General Civil Aviation Authority. So the UAE's FAA counterpart. They raised some questions. They raised 10, well, nine points. Again, on this one, there's 10 is listed, but it's just blank. But they're, they're, pretty seemingly upset that the FAA was not totally forthright with them. The end of question three says, what is the rationale behind the certification by means of analysis instead of flight testing or both? The least FAA and Boeing could do is assist the authority and the operator by providing necessary data associated to the certification and manual trim techniques. And Ian, before we started recording, you had mentioned that the UAE was actually a part of the 
Joint Joint Operations Review Board. Yeah. So if their concerns, I'm sure, were brought up in the joint board, I'm guessing they weren't addressed and they resorted to asking these questions in in a public forum like this, which is to me concerning in in that I don't really know the full background of why the UAE, who is a, a nation that was integrally involved in getting the MAX certified back in the air, why does it have nine or 10 points that are leading to submitting a comment? Should have, shouldn't its concerns have been met in the recertification process to begin with? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know why that's come about the way it has. And like you, Jason, I, I find it interesting that they would, would go this route rather than work way through. Although it, it is entirely possible that that these comments and questions will be addressed later on by the Joint Operations Review Board. So maybe they wanted to make it part of the the public record so that they could then bring this up later on. I don't know, to be perfectly honest, but I I think it's certainly a question worth answering. And as of date, I guess the public comment period is still open. There have been 224 comments in total. So people have thoughts. People have thoughts. People have thoughts. Organizations have thoughts. There is a significant comment uh, it's it's more of a report really than than a single comment by a group calling itself the Families of Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302. It includes some expert comment as well, so it, it's a technical you know comment as well that was um, you know produced by by experts retained by these families, but they they sign something together and put that through. There's also the you know commercial aspect of things uh, where you have organizations like Airlines for America, which is the, the umbrella trade organization for US-based airlines, most US-based airlines, and they're adding comments to uh, some interesting comments as well by Curtis Eubank, who was the Boeing engineer who kind of brought forth some of these concerns initially to, to the public, as well as some fo- other former Boeing engineers, including Bob Bogish. So those are the comments that, that we'll flag in the show notes, as well as the main comments that we will add a link to. There are, as we talked about kind of initially, the first comments were less than stellar or tangentially related. The comments that have come in in the last, say, 10 days have been the, the informed comments about you know raising serious questions about the certification work that has been done to date and that, that continues to be done. So those I think are the ones that are, are worth reviewing and we'll link to those. Yeah, there are some definitely interesting ones to go through from just the last couple of days and I'm only seeing literally right now, uh, one of them from the uh, National Association of Air Traffic Controllers. Here's one from ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association International, who interestingly raises some of the same concerns that Peter Lemmy did specifically about the uh, stick shaker and the need to actually pull the circuit breaker to deactivate it, which is all sorts of red lights coming up in my mind that that's a thing. So I would not expect the uh, the casebook on, on the MAX airworthiness directive to be closed all that soon because there are still some seemingly very legitimate concerns raised by the public comment period. Yeah, for, for sure. I, I think there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. And, and it sounds to me that 
organizations that should be 100% satisfied before the max flies aren't. The UAE GCAA is is one of the the largest national regulators as far as the max fleet is concerned. I mean, Fly Dubai has you know a, a large and supposedly growing max fleet. So you would think that that would be you know something that that they would want to to really understand and and have finalized before anything moves forward. And you also want the pilots who are going to be flying to be comfortable with, with, you know, with the aircraft. Yeah. I mean, even here in the US, a couple of pilot unions um, have come out and somewhat surprisingly spoken up and said uh, the MCAS troubleshooting, basically, um, that, that is now to be done by by checklist, by physical checklist is insufficient and, and that this should be a, a remedy that is committed to memory that does not require a checklist because it is that severe an issue. So even even pilot unions from the US who were very, very supportive of the MAX the entire time have some legitimate concerns, which I find interesting. Yeah. And and when this is all done, when when the MAX is certified, it'll be interesting to see what changes were implemented in the in the final version and which are just kind of taken under advisement but but not acted upon in in the final rulemaking so that'll be interesting to see where should we go next jason shall we go to the land of make believe or should we go to new york uh let's just get the make believe stuff over with <laughs> jason's favorite airline well, I should say second favorite airline because your first is is Baltia, right? Well, of course. I mean, long live Baltia. So your second favorite airline, Avatar Airlines, which is really just Baltia 2.0 with I think a little bit better marketing. Sure. They're, sure. They're, they're new. So th- their whole idea is to fly bargain fares on a 747. And so given the uptick in cargo with COVID and things like that, their argument is now that they'll be much better suited to fly and be ready to do that because they'll have belly capacity for the 747. So I I still find it laughable that they think they're ever going to get off the ground, but they got somebody to write an article about them. I don't want to talk about it. All right. So let's talk about the 747 because I've been digging into the numbers. That's better. For the past week. I, this this whole thing was just a, a way to talk about cargo, really. So I was digging into the, the numbers in the 747 since the beginning of the year because my my working hypothesis last week was that all of the passenger flights are going away. How much cargo is actually flying around or how much cargo is, is the 747 carrying? And as it turns out, the answer is a lot. So the number of 747 flights per week have stayed roughly the same all year as passenger flying has dropped to near zero. So the the most cargo flights in, in any given week, it, the cargo was 98% of all 747 flying at the height. And it's down, and I'm using down kind of in square quotes, to to 93% because there there's very little passenger flying and most of it's Lufthansa. And very interestingly, Rosia in Russia has made a huge push with their 747 fleet. And they've even gone so far as to plan on taking some of British Airways 
old 747s and putting them into service. Is that still happening or was that just a lie on Twitter a couple of days ago? That was probably just a lie on Twitter, but- But a believable lie. But a believe, based on the data, yeah. I mean, it, it would make sense if, if that is their plan. I don't know why it would be their plan, but it makes sense if it is. Because they, they've gone from, you know, from a few flights- you know, before June, a few, you know, here and there down from their, their normal program up to hundreds of flights a week now with their, with their 747 fleet. So it's, it's really something, you know, fascinating to see them as, as the number one 747 passenger carrier in the world. Who would have guessed? I did not have that on my call sheet. Yeah. Most of Rosaya's 747s, I believe, came from the corpse of, of Transaero, which yes. is a whole other saga. But did not expect the the poke of the 747 passenger fleet to end up flying domestic short haul within Russia. And there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have guessed? I was like, what? And 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 that's that's how it is. So yeah, some interesting stuff. There we gotta I put some graphs together that that we'll link to in the show notes. You know, if, if you like the 747, it, it's not going away anytime soon. You just have to try a little bit harder to find one. Yeah, exactly. And you, you have to um, put yourself in a box if you want to have a really good chance. Time time is running out, so stop waiting. I, yeah. I, every time I talk about the A380 or the 747 or the A340-600, people come out of the woodwork on Twitter and say, damn, I never, I'm not going to get my yeah. first chance to fly these things. Like I keep saying, you have your chance. There, you still have a chance now, but get out there before these are only flying domestic routes within Iran and it is really impossible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there's a, you know, a, a good chance that, that that's where they could all end up eventually. So, tell me about this business with Ukraine International Airlines flying to JFK. Ah. What are they on about? Well, they used to fly to, to JFK with the world's worst 767s and then they got some really nice triple sevens. No, no, no. I, I have flown an American Airlines 767. Good oh, sir. these were worse somehow. Are you sure? They were in the super, super rare, even denser configuration that only a few psychotic airlines out there ha- have opted. Um, the 242 config on a 767, Ooh, which was okay. incredibly okay. tight. Ouch. So, yeah. Somehow worse than American, which were comfortable but outdated. These were outdated and uncomfortable. But UIA wants to resume flights to JFK. They're only US destination, but they have grounded their 777s, but they probably don't want to waste the 767 on uh, a flight to JFK since they don't have the demand, but they have enough demand to resume the route. So they will opt for a 12-hour journey from Ukraine through Iceland to JFK. That is a long way on what's scheduled to be a 737-900ER. Um, I guess if you got to go and you, for whatever reason, don't want to go through Istanbul or Dubai or Doha or London or any other or airport. Or anywhere else. Or <laughs> anywhere else where you could fly on you know, a wide-body aircraft that's designed to fly that distance, UIA has an option, an uncomfortable 7-3 option for you. That that's what I don't understand. I, I mean, like, why? If you, if you have to stop anyway, why not just change planes? I I don't know. I, I it's not like airlines are not flying to Ukraine. They they most definitely are. I don't know. Maybe if the fare is cheap enough and people don't know any better, people will book it. That's half this industry is booked on is works on that premise <laughs> of people not knowing what they book. 
Oh, that it's. I mean, I I can't argue with your statistic because I don't have anything to back it up. But nor do I. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Okay, so we've got weird stuff going on at JFK, and there's some interesting stuff going on in Pittsburgh. Yes, this one took me. I I think it took almost everybody by surprise. But Cathay Pacific will launch two times weekly triple seven three hundred ER cargo flights to Pittsburgh. And if you had that on your 2020 bingo sheet, uh, congratulations. That was not something I would have ever guessed. But this one is interesting. And I, I had thought and speculated that this would be some sort of pharmaceutical export or, or something from Pittsburgh to somewhere else in Asia. But it is actually cargo being flown on Cathay to Pittsburgh due to the fact that apparently Pittsburgh is an easy airport to get in and out of to truck things to the rest of the East Coast, since the rest of the airports that Cathay serves, such as JFK, are congested and it takes a long time just to get out of the airport. But that is a, an odd use of a COVID combi that I had not expected. I mean, I guess that makes really good sense. I guess so. And it's something I've never thought about before, but it, yeah, that does make really good sense. Like when you when you have to spend an hour just leaving the airport, whether you're a truck, a bus, a car, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that's time wasted. Yeah, and they had to find an airport on the East Coast that could support a triple seven and also had uh, cargo loading capabilities or equipment on the ground that could handle a 777-300ER. And I'm guessing there aren't a ton of those at airports that aren't already served by major freight facilities. So this is very interesting. Huh. Yeah. Don't quite know if it's actually a COVID combi or just a 777 with belly cargo, but I'm going to go ahead and guess it's a, a full COVID combi. I, that that I do not know, but we'll look into it and, and see if we can pin that down. Let's close the show with something that you and I both never thought would happen and still might not. There's always a chance. There's always a chance. Anything could happen. The final flight from Berlin's Tegel Airport has been scheduled. And it's not Air Berlin. <laughs> Oh, see, now, now I'm just sad. Yeah. Air France will operate the final flight departing Berlin-Tegel for Paris on Sunday, November 8th. They will depart Berlin at 3 p.m. local time. So set your time converting devices accordingly. That is the schedule. It is, of course, subject to change. Anything could happen, et cetera, et cetera. So, so last episode, I think we talked about the first aircraft that would land there at the new airport. And, and now we have the, the final departure from the, the old airport. So it'll be uh, an interesting thing to see whether or not any of this actually happens but it it seems like there's a good chance that that things will go to plan this yeah, time. Yeah, I'm a little confused as to why it's not Lufthansa doing this, but I get I guess at this point the the airline this new uh, I guess sort of airport terminal facility was built for no longer exists and hasn't existed in, in how long years at this point. But it, it it would have been minimally interesting at least if Lufthansa operated a flight out of Teagle, took off, landed on the same runway, and arrived at uh, the new BER. 
<laughs> it's just up and down and just down. up and down back onto the same runway. Because it is it, technically, I guess, is it a new airport? Technically, sort of. Yeah, it's it's new ish. I mean, it's the same physical thing, same runway. It is a new, totally new terminal facility. So I guess it's. Not quite like LaGuardia where you're building a new terminal building and calling it a new airport. This is kind of a new airport, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say that this is a new airport or at least a, a new – I don't really know how to draw the distinction well, th- between This is a debate. Airfield I did not mean to start right now. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you go down that road, you're going to have to keep on it. But uh, we'll, we'll save this particular debate for – Probably not a future episode because I don't have a terrible amount of interest in having it. Uh, only to say that uh, it is scheduled. It will hopefully be done. We will call this an episode in the life of aviation. And whoever ends up writing the the book on getting this airport open, I I would love to have them on the podcast so that we can talk to them about it when when it is done and comes out because it what it what a mess what a mess indeed that would that should be the title of the book that's the title of this episode on that note this has been episode ninety four of Av Talk I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.